Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I'm Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio is Jeremy Bean. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. You're getting better and better at that. The degree thing. Keep the respect flowing. We've got, coming up in this episode, our interview with Austin Dacey, author and sexy beast. Uh, but before we get to that... You guys are like a couple of teenagers. I have to say, when we get to the interview... If you notice any awkwardness, it's because right before we started, I told Austin Dacey that he was sexy. You know, I meant that as a totally, you know, the man has dreamy eyes, and there's nothing wrong with that. He's a sexy, sexy You make yourself a fool for him, though. Have some pride, man. But before we get to our interview with the sexy, sexy Austin Dacey, in the news, we have a real solution now for the gas crisis that has been plaguing our country. Not the drive? Well... P- public transportation? A smaller car? No, no. Those are I all... Mon- monorail. Monorail trains. Monorail. As wonderful as those suggestions are, nothing compares to the one that one Rocky Twyman of San Francisco has come up with. He has decided to stage pray-ins at gas stations, saying that, quote, God is the only one we can turn to at this point. Our leaders don't seem to be able to do anything about it. The prices keep soaring and soaring. They're praying to the wrong God. OPEC is the one that's in charge of things. Maybe if they pray to Allah, they'd get things done. God established the law of supply and demand, and he can contravene that if he wants. And make it so that the more of something we have, the more expensive it is, or the less of something we have, the less expensive it is, if he chooses to do so. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, why are they praying to lower the gas prices? Wouldn't it be more cost-effective to pray to increase your gas mileage in your car? Like loaves and fish. You wouldn't even have to go to the gas station. You You can jump in an SUV and it would just keep on the same tank. It would be like, we filled this up like last year. And we're still driving on the same tank. Yeah, it's a yeah. miracle. And couldn't Jesus take just like one Prius and make it into a million Priuses? Mm-hmm. If he chose to do so. He'd have to put it in a basket first. Right. Because I don't care what the price of gas is. But you could just keep is. on driving them out and driving them out. Or better yet, couldn't he just change water into gas? <laughs> That's well, what we should do. When I siphon off tanks, I always put back some water just to... There you go. So that's, that, see, that's very generous of you. Here's another thing that occurred to me is that by making gas cheaper, in fact, are they, aren't they praying for people to burn more gas? Like they're praying for people essentially to pollute more and uh, contribute yeah. to global warming more because the Lord— Because that will bring about the second coming. Yes. That's why I'm saying the mileage is a, better, is a better prayer request. I don't think God should grant that. Plus, isn't that one of the new seven deadly sins, like the 14 deadly sins or something? I, I believe it is. Church the Catholic Church has their new— um, mm-hmm. Too much gas— burning. I think we just should have just stuck with gluttony. Yeah, it kind of covers that, too, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Yeah, they like to be more specific now, the the Catholics these days. So all, all, all that experience in court has taught them that. 
Yeah, I wasn't oh. going to go there, but Ooh. thanks. So hopefully, Rocky Twyman, and frankly, if anyone can bring down God's grace upon gas prices, it's a guy named Rocky. Uh, hopefully, Rocky will be able to lower gas prices. In the meantime, let's listen to our interview with Austin Dacey. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Worst segue nice. ever. That segue was so let's, smooth. Let's, uh, let's try that again. <laughs> How do you segue between gas and Austin Daisy? person who's a real gas, Austin. <laughs> That's not bad. Um, speaking of gas, Austin Daisy sure fills up my tank. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> This whole thing is going to have to go to the outtake. <laughs> no, I think we should just leave it in, and this will be the transition. Uh, not so much. I'm out. Um, while Rocky Twyman prays for the angels to keep the gas prices from soaring, we turn to our own angelic-faced secularist, Austin Daisy. Austin Dacey, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I've heard you are a representative for the Center for Inquiry to the United Nations? That's right. Uh, what exactly does that entail? Um, what do you do as a representative for the Center for Inquiry? Well, the United Nations, since its inception, has carved out a space within the institution for civil society organizations, what they call NGOs, non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. Now, as you might imagine, many of these are actually religious organizations. The Vatican alone probably has you know, two dozen uh, groups there. Uh, the Islamists are certainly well represented, as well as charitable, humanitarian, and human rights groups from around the world. A couple of years ago, the Center for Inquiry applied for and after several years uh, was awarded an affiliation called Special Consultative Status with the Social and Economic Council of the United Nations. That's really just a long way of saying that we're a kind of lobbyist. We're a lobbyist at the international community just as the center has a lobbyist on Capitol Hill in Washington. Mm -hmm. So our goal then is to represent the secular scientific outlook at the UN, um, both to help them you know, further and defend their own ideals, but also to pursue our own. The UN, as many of your listeners know, was really founded on what could only be called humanist ideals. Mm -hmm. uh, Julian Huxley, one of the key players, uh, called himself an, an evolutionary humanist, an evolutionary naturalist. The, the first head of the World Health Organization was a notorious Canadian agnostic. But the whole idea mm -hmm. of uh, promulgating uh, universal ethical standards embodied in the 1947 Universal Declaration of Human Rights can be seen as a, a part of a humanist project that can be traced in, in this civilization back to the early modern period of Europe. And so it's particularly shameful and saddening that in many ways the UN is abandoning that historic role. Explain for us some of the ways that you feel the UN is abandoning that role. 
The most shocking came uh, just last month, although uh, many people have never heard about this. But the United Nations Human Rights Council is the body whose job it has been to monitor and to police infractions on the human rights uh, elaborated in the Declaration. Central among them, of course, is freedom of expression. If you don't have freedom of expression, it makes it even harder to defend the other rights. Absolutely. Astonishingly, on March 28th, the, the United Nations Human Rights Council uh, adopted a resolution which was spearheaded by uh, Pakistan, Egypt, and a number of the other members of the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries, which I think there are about 51 or 52 member states. They put forward a resolution that would effectively change the mandate of the Human Rights Council. No longer would its job be to monitor and police the uh, the limitations or the, the, the violations of human rights and freedom of expression. But now it would also be the job of the Special Rapporteur for Human Rights to monitor and police what they called abuses of freedom of expression. Abuses. abuses. Of freedom. Now, you have to realize that this is the result of agitation that started two years ago during the worldwide controversy over the Danish cartoons of the Prophet yeah. Muhammad. And Which have recently been republished, and now we're seeing that all over again. We're seeing that, and, and last month, hot on, on everyone's uh, minds, was the release of the film uh, Fitna by a, a right-wing Dutch politician, Gerrit Wilders. And so it was in this context that the OIC put forward what is, in effect, a blasphemy taboo. It says that freedom of expression should not include the right to offend the religious sensibilities of believers in the Vatican's terms. What is most astonishing is that this resolution has passed so that now, at the heart of the human rights system, at the United Nations, is a blasphemy taboo erected by Islamists wow. in order to protect Islam from criticism. So it, it's passed and it's final now. It That's is. It is. What, what kind of – was there resistance to this? I mean, what, did it pass by a narrow margin? Did it have broad support? There were a number of abstentions and the United States, of course, is actually not a part of the council for longstanding objections that we have to mm -hmm. its composition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we've got a great record. <laughs> right. And actually, I have to say that the more time I spend there, the more I sympathize with with Bolton. <laughs> uh -huh. Because you can see that, look, if the Human Rights Council can be hijacked right. by a special religious interest, then what is left of the humanist principles of a universal ethic of human rights? The U.S. issued a protest, as did Canada, which which impressed Good. me. But, you know, China, Russia, of course, were in favor. Cuba also favored this. And which should right there indicate <laughs> something to people involved why... Why are these countries pushing this? Right. But what's, what's really deeply, deeply troubling is that this is really part of what I see and describe in my book, The Secular Conscience, as a kind of a loss of nerve, uh, a loss of voice, and loss of, I call it the loss of the soul, uh, of secular liberalism, who mm -hmm. you would think would be the, f the, the first people to stand up uh, for these rights. And we've talked about this before on the show as well, is one of the problems with 
being an open-minded liberal is that one of our core values is to respect the values of other people. And this leads us into some problems sometimes when you run into issues where it, it comes into contact with free speech and that sort of thing. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with this duality of being open-minded and yet still respecting free speech and still promoting free speech? In order to deal with it, we need to return to the notion of conscience as the central principle of our philosophy, which principle, by the way, we can make common cause with uh, liberal religionists as well. Mm -hmm. It's the protection of freedom of conscience not freedom of religion as such, that we and the religious should stand for, and that is what we have in common with them. Now, it's conscience that helps us distinguish between those religious practices that we, if not respect, should at least tolerate, and maybe even in some cases praise, and those which must be resisted and opposed wherever they're found. After all, if you think about it, Beliefs are just not the kind of thing that deserve respect, neither by extension are religions. What are religions? They are collections of metaphysical ideas and ethical ideals. Mm -hmm. Ideas are either believed or disbelieved. Ideals are either followed or rejected. What deserves respect or not, I say, are persons. Persons. And you don't respect persons by agreeing with everything that they say. Right. Quite the contrary, mm -hmm. respect mm -hmm. demands that you take them seriously. That means taking what they say seriously. And that means subjecting their uh, claims to precisely the same moral and intellectual standards to which you subject yourself and your fellows. Anything less would not be respect. It would be a kind of condescension, the idea that mm -hmm. those people over there you know, those dark-skinned people, those uh, uh, people from backward societies are not deserving of the standards to which we hold ourselves. That surely can't be the right uh, attitude for liberals. Now, you've, you've said in your book, The Secular Conscience, which if you go to our website, uh, the podcast website, www.doubtcast.org, we will have a link to that book for you guys to check out. It's a very good book. It's well worth taking the time to read. But in your book, you you explain how taking that principle, the freedom of conscience, you say many liberals then have gone too far and bought into something you call the privacy fallacy. And I was wondering if you could explain what that means, the privacy fallacy for us. A core secular liberal principle is that conscience is private. And by that, we have meant that it's not the business of government to tell you what and what not to believe, to subsidize, to support, or to oppose any uh, matters of conscience. Which seems like a very good idea. And I have nothing bad to say about that principle. However, it has mutated mm -hmm. and been perverted in a way which ironically has not served secular liberals well. So private privacy has come to mean not only keeping the government out of it, but privatization came to mean keeping it out of the public square altogether, keeping it out of the marketplace of ideas. Now the motivation, which is understandable f on the part of secularists, was to keep divisive religious beliefs out of politics. But of course, we couldn't keep them out of politics because liberty uh, of, of religion and religious exercise 
guarantees the right to um, right. to freely exercise your faith, even when that means talking in in politics in ways that people disagree with. What else could it mean? So instead, it was the secular liberals who imposed the kind of gag order on themselves. I say mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. now because matters of belief are are private in the sense of personal or subjective, they become out of bounds for serious public scrutiny and criticism. This we can see in the harsh reaction to the so-called new atheist authors like Sam Harris, mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins, Ion Hirsi Ali. These people were decried not just by religious conservatives, but by their secular liberal brethren as what? As being militant, as being evangelical. Fundamentalist. And my favorite, atheist fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for what? For merely insisting that religion, like all other serious subjects for public conversation must be analyzed by the same intellectual and moral standards as all other serious topics. That, it seems, has become a secular taboo, and I argue that it's a, it's a taboo of our own making because of this misunderstanding of privacy. And I argue that conscience should be seen, and traditionally by our great liberal forebears such as John Stuart Mill and uh, Spinoza, conscience should be seen not as private, in this sense, but as open. How would the open society be different than a society where where conscience is privatized? First, we, on the secular side, would remove this gag order uh, on ourselves and, and, and our fellow citizens. And we would say that politics and the public square generally is a place where people can voice their claims of conscience and then let honest debate ensue. Uh, just because a claim originates in in, in uh, religion or one's values does not exempt it from public scrutiny in, by lights of shared standards of mm-hmm. feasibility, uh, practical implementability, uh, morality, legality, and so on. So let the public square be the place where claims of conscience are debated. And second, it would be a place where secularists would be able to therefore defend their own uh, vision of values and, and, and moral values in politics. We have too often ceded the, the moral high ground and uh, abandoned the field of moral discourse, leaving it mm-hmm. entirely to the religious, mm-hmm. um, whether the religious right or now the, the so-called religious left. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton recently participated in a compassion forum, a presidential candidate sort of debate in Pennsylvania, and the subject was faith and values. Somehow these have become, you know, inseparable running mates. Mm -hmm. Uh, Values are always uh, connected to faith. And or the ridiculousness of the triumphing of the values voters in what the 2004 election was. Exactly. So from from this uh, this exit poll, of values voters, the U.S. Democratic Party decided that in order to to engage with citizens of conscience, they needed to speak the language of religion, as it turns out, a kind of evangelical Christian religion in many cases. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whatever happened to the idea of a civic moral discourse in which to discuss matters of the day, surely that's part of the American tradition and, and part of the, the secular liberal tradition. But we've, um, we've abandoned it, and that is in part because of our own confusion mm-hmm. about what our tradition means. You know, one of the things looking back at history, you read about 
Thomas Jefferson, an Enlightenment deist in many ways. And Abraham Lincoln, we just recently had that uh, that whole thing in, in Chicago, Illinois, where it, oh, yes. was it this Il- is the land of Lincoln? Yes, uh, Monique Davis. Yes, yeah, yeah criticizing uh, an atheist, saying basically he didn't have the right to speak. Meanwhile, Lincoln himself was a, right. a free thinker. Um, yes, whether or not Lincoln Lincoln seems to be ambiguous as a, as his religiosity goes, mm-hmm. but he most clearly was not a uh, um, doctrinaire fundamentalist. No, oh, when a local you know pastor asked, "Why don't you come to church more often?" he said, "I would gladly belong to any church, but only one that has no dogma except to love thy neighbor, <laughs> love thy neighbor." Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now these uh, these great heroes of American democracy probably couldn't get elected today saying those types of things. And so this does seem to be a more recent phenomenon. Although Robert Ingersoll couldn't get elected at roughly the same time period because he was true. an open agnostic. He was so o- overt, sure but Robert Ingersoll was overtly sure. agnostic. Mm-hmm. I, I might be mistaken on some of the details, but it just seems to me like uh, as you said, that's something in our American heritage that we've lost. And when did this begin happening? When did we start buying into the privacy fallacy in your mind? Well, I have a long chapter on that called How Secularism Lost Its Soul. <laughs> it's, and it's long because the story is long. In some respects, it goes all the way back to you know the, the Lutheran revolt, the, the Protestant mm-hmm. reformations, which in many ways privatized belief, made it not a matter of public ritual and observance, but rather of, of inner, you know, this, this, this small, still voice um, and, and so on. I know the, um, the Protestant religious experience really begins with a, an, an inside job, you know, a, <laughs> a, a conversion experience. <laughs> but there are also elements in, in our uh, commercial society which contribute to this way of thinking. You know, in a commercial capitalistic society, we tend to uh, bifurcate social space into the, the bureaucratic, governmental, mm-hmm. civil. That's the public. Whatever doesn't fall in that sort of falls into this private realm, the realm of family, of individual choice, and, and property, and exchanges of property. And religion and, and values have, in the American way of life, kind of fallen into that private mm-hmm. zone. And no more would you, you know, criticize someone for their choice and flavor of ice creams than would you criticize them for their, you know, choice and flavor of deities. But there are also somewhat independent developments in in political theory and in law. And in America, you really see that in the latter half of the 20th century. And you have attempts in jurisprudence, but also in political philosophy to define the liberal state as one that's neutral. Mm-hmm. that doesn't take a stand on any contested questions. Uh, this is certainly the approach of John Rawls, the influential Harvard political philosopher. In his books, A Theory of Justice and later Political Liberalism, he says that politics ought to be the space of public reason, and a public reason is just one that all reasonable citizens accept. And Jürgen Habermas defends a similar line in Europe. So it is, in that sense fairly recent. And you have uh, political leaders like uh, FDR. If you go back and read his first Mm -hmm. inaugural, you find a wonderful vocabulary of values that's entirely civic and in that way secular. 
He talks about how in world affairs we ought to adhere to an ethic of the good neighbor who doesn't uh, violate the rights of his neighbor so long as the neighbor respects his. He talks about how we ought not to wait to be ministered unto, but we ought to be ministers unto our fellow citizens. It's something that, that we secular liberals have to take responsibility for. After all, to go back to the 2004 exit poll, you know, the, the Pew Center for Religion and, and, and the Press went back and scrutinized those data, and surprise, surprise, they found out that the answers that you get depend heavily on the way that you right. frame the questions. Right. Right. If you allow people, rather than giving them categories from which to select what they want in a candidate, if you allow them to volunteer their own categories, then only about one in five said anything about religion. More, rather, mm. spoke about personal traits of character, such as mm. the ability to discern right from wrong mm. and personal integrity. So I argue that maybe, maybe even what Americans want most in a leader is uh, not a candidate of religion, but a candidate of conscience, someone mm. who is able and willing to speak in the language of morality. But that will be unable to do so long as we insist that religion and ethics are private in the sense that we now mean it. Right. One of the problems, as I see it, with the movement as a whole is that we're very good at arguing from science and from reason, but we're not good at arguing these moral uh, arguments, which is why I think for the large part we abstain from a lot of these and we're not getting out there. You're saying we need to get out there. We need to take that into the public square. We need to talk issues of morality. How do we do that? How do we get past that hurdle of science and reason, which clearly is not playing well in the in the cheap seats, okay? Mm-hmm. We're, we haven't been doing too well for the past few elections. How do we move that out? How can we talk stem cells and abortion and all of that in the language of morality and not just science? Well, first we have to remove this gag order. We just, we have to stop insisting that the public square should be a conscience-free zone. That doesn't work for us or for anyone, and it hasn't. We have to rediscover our own traditions of objective mm-hmm. ethics. And I have long chapters on, on Mill, um, on Spinoza section, on Adam Smith, which help, I hope, uh, to, to recover some of that lost uh, language. And it centers on, on conscience. Which, incidentally, I just want to interject here. I was really impressed with how, using Spinoza and others, you were trying to show that there's a religious case for this as well. This is not just a secularist idea. You tried to show the roots of this that are perfectly compatible with a lot of religious belief and, in fact, even grew out of certain religious traditions. That's right. That's right the secular open society that we now enjoy really owes a great deal to the dissident Protestant sects who were busy in the in the seventeenth, eighteenth century and earlier trying to think of reasons, you know, why they shouldn't be burned at the stake by the Catholics. <laughs> and of course, in order to make those arguments they had to appeal to uh things like the Bible. I talk about, you know, one of the earliest book length defenses of toleration in the West came from the Swiss Anabaptist Balthasar Hubmeier, and it's an appeal to the example of Christ. He says Christ did not come to to butcher, maim, and destroy, but so that those that live might live more 
abundantly. The dissident Protestants also pioneered this argument, which I call the argument from futility, which says, well, belief is just not the kind of thing that can be coerced anyway. By its very nature, it has to follow necessarily from one's own free assessment of what one has most reason to do. You can't, through an act of will, decide that Mm-hmm. Two plus two equals five, even right. if someone has a gun to your head. That's why, you know, the torturers in 1984 had so much, had so much trouble. Mm-hmm. But this was uh, developed by Spinoza and, and through John Locke finds its way onto the bookshelves of James Madison. And he writes in his famous memorial on remonstrance that coerced belief is not genuine and authentic and therefore would not be genuinely pleasing to the creator. Take that, Pascal. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So what's interesting here is that it's an argument for secularism and an argument for toleration and pluralism, but it's an argument with deeply theological assumptions. Mm -hmm. Another reason why, if we abandon the idea of talking about religion and talking about values, we won't be able to avail ourselves of some of the most influential arguments for secularism Mm -hmm. and toleration Mm -hmm. in the West. And incidentally, none of these people, Spinoza, uh, any of them, equated this with privatization of conscience. Making conscience free of coercion was not the same as keeping it out of the public sphere. Exactly. And quite the opposite. You know, Mill defends the open society not because he thinks that values are subjective things that can't be discussed, but rather so that people may be free to pursue what he called experiments in living and to share the results of those experiments with each other in hopes of finding those forms of human life that are most objectively worth living and excellent. Um, So if you look at the tradition, you see that it was always about starting conversations, not about stopping them as it has become. So they treated conscience as open in the same way that today maybe we treat the press as open. We say it's to be protected from coercion and control by external authorities, but we don't therefore say that the press is private, right? (laughs) We say that it's protected so that it may pursue an important public function. And in the same way, I argue, traditionally liberals have said that conscience is protected from coercion so that it may pursue its vital public function of furthering conversation about questions of identity and meaning and uh, value and truth. Something else that you've done with your work for the Center for Inquiry is you organized the Secular Islam Summit. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what what that was about? There are, you know, countless countless numbers of practicing believers and and also, you know, skeptics and unbelievers in, in the Muslim and Arab world who are just as appalled as we are about what happened at the United Nations Human Rights Council mm-hmm. the other day, which is to say these are people who, whether or not they they still uh, practice Islam, they believe that it is compatible, can be reconciled with universal human rights, freedom of expression, equality for women, and secular scientific modernity. Uh, and they are actually working to reconcile their faith with these things, in many cases at great risk to the, themselves and their families. The Secular Islam Summit, which I organized along with a number of other people, including Ibn Warak, the author of Why I'm Not a Muslim, noted apostate who now serves as a senior research fellow with the Center for Inquiry. 
was an attempt to bring together in the U.S. really f- for the first time a lar- large cross-section of these dissidents and, and apostates, which we did in March of 2007. They met for two days and issued a declaration, a kind of statement of principles called the St. Petersburg Declaration, named for St. Petersburg, Florida, where we happen to be <laughs> meeting. And I urge your listeners to log on to secularislam.org, where they can read that declaration, actually see videos of the sessions. And what you'll find there is that in order for these reformers to do their important work, they need to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. They're not abiding by the the gag rule that we see right. I- imposed in, in many societies in Europe and certainly in Canada and in, and in many communities in the United States. In order for people like Ayah Jamal al-Din, a liberal Shia cleric in Iraq, who's one of the few fighting for a complete separation of mosque and state there, mm-hmm. in order for him to make his case for secularism, mm-hmm. He has to do as uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer did. He has to appeal to sacred scripture. He says secularism is not an anti-Islamic idea. In fact, it's deeply mm-hmm. Quranic. And he he even has said, um, you know, when young people come to re- religion, not because the state forces them to, but because they feel it in their hearts, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. that actually increases religious devotion. James Madison couldn't have said it better. That's the argument from futility. So what I found is that these people are practicing a new kind, or rather uh, they're dedicated to an older and more robust kind of secular liberalism, which I believe we in the West need to return to and to recognize them as our most important allies and friends today. Hmm. Returning just for a moment back to this resolution passed by the United Nations, Mm -hmm. I guess I have two questions, and one is, what are some of the potential consequences that might come from this decision? Uh, what do you envision could, th- what kind of trouble could this cause? And then second of all, is there any chance of repealing it? As for the question of consequences, the United Nations has a real moral authority in the world, which seems to survive even things like the, the oil for food uh, <laughs> embezzlement yeah. mm-hmm. scandal. It has a real moral authority, and and deservedly so, because the idea of universal human rights could actually save the world if if it were zealously defended and and, and implemented. That is that is the true uh, the true founding dream of the United Nations, and that's one that we we cannot abandon. So, in order for that moral authority to be upheld, this decision has to be overturned. Now, what can be done? Certainly European countries and all freedom-loving countries who are members of the Council should withdraw in protest. And there are now some, some humanists at the International Humanist and Ethical Union, and I'm working uh, at the Center for Inquiry to to I hope create a, a kind of international coalition of humanists who would call for this. There are even some claiming that human rights respecting countries should kind of form form their own new body, at least in the interim, until su- until such a remedy can be sought. Because really, the if the council does not protect 
unqualified freedom of expression, then it has absolutely no purpose in existing, mm, and right. it's an utter sham. And it has to be denounced by right-thinking governments as that. As I mentioned, the United States is not a party, and we've we've protested. But I have been in touch with with uh, people at the State Department about about what, if anything, they hope to do next. So. Yeah. People should um, watch the Center for Inquiry site because we hope to be um, launching a, a campaign about this in the near future. Is there anything the average American citizen, somebody who might be listening to this show, who is very upset about this, is there anything that we can do to try to help remedy this situation or help, I don't know, call our congressmen or something like that? Right. Well, and, and not even just the average American to take it a step further since we have international listeners. And oh, sorry. Forgot about you international in listeners. In such exotic we, places we, we do as love you. Australia and Nova Scotia, which <laughs> I believe is somewhere Not too far west. from here. <laughs> um, how do certainly Americans have probably slightly different outlets, but what can citizens do? Well, citizens certainly should contact their, their elected uh, representatives. Any, any of those representatives that that have anything to do with foreign relations and certainly the ambassadors to the United Nations from various member states should be alerted. In this country, we have something called the uh, International Commission on Religious Freedom, really whose job it is to protect the freedom of expression. And I know that, and I know that they're very alarmed about this. So all those people should be contacted. Beyond that, I would urge people to, to get to know the the secular Muslim and community and what Irshad Manji calls the reform-minded Muslim movement. So authors like Irshad Manji, like like Ayan Hirsi Ali, people like Jamal Al Din in in Iraq, people like Ibn Warak here here in the states, and to to educate themselves about about these struggles because. In thinking about this and working in this area for the last several years, I've become convinced, as Salman Rushdie put it, that that this moment for Western secular liberals is as important as as the historic choice between Stalinist communism and um, an anti-Stalinist democracy, which mm-hmm. was faced by a former generation of liberals, and that the defining test for our generation is the extent to which we see uh, radical Islamism as a threat, not just you know, to American imperial power or capitalism or McDonald's, but rather to the very idea of the secular open society, which we mm-hmm. ought never give up. And second, to see these, these courageous reformers uh, like Ayan Hirsi Ali as our first and most important comrades in, in this struggle. And they are the people with whom we should be seeking solidarity and giving succor and and comfort and support and material help to. Again, secularislam.org is a good place to begin that education. Well, thank you again, Austin Dacey, for everything that you're doing to help promote the secular conscience, to raise awareness about this, and to act on an international stage even to defend freedom of expression. And thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. It was a pleasure, and thank you for starting this show as a beacon of of openness and conversation, which is exactly what we need more of.
tying in with our interview with Austin Dacey, we have a very special edition of the Props and Shit List. Mm -hmm. This is when we give praise to those who deserve it and heap scorn on those who need it. Start off with our shit list. Yes, today on the shit list, I think it is very appropriate to put the Human Rights Council of the UN on our shit list. I think they very much deserve it. And I think we could even extend to the shit list uh, is our, our wonderful media here in America because I know this is true of Dave. It's certainly true of myself. But I had no idea that this had even happened in the UN, the passing of this amendment in the Human Rights Council that Austin Dacey spoke of earlier. I had no clue this had even happened until he told us about it, even though it happened at the end of March. Completely blown away by that fact and wanting to get a little more history on the subject, did a tiny little bit of research on it and wanted to share some of that for the shit list. Which, by the way, is hard to come by even on the Internet. There is not nearly the information that should be available on this. For a moment I thought maybe this is me, maybe I haven't been keeping up on the news enough and that I uh, should stay better informed. And certainly there's a little bit of truth to that. But, no, there was not a whole lot of media coverage. People were not going out of their way to talk about this, even though I think it's one of the more important issues that's been facing us. So how did this happen? You can trace it back to as early as 1999. The Human Rights Council has been put in place to replace an earlier body called the Commission on Human Rights, And the Commission on Human Rights in the UN, in 1999, received a draft that was titled the Defamation of Islam Resolution. It was put out by Pakistan, and it was intended to combat uh, negative stereotypes of Islam. And at some point, somebody must have realized, hey, wait, the UN is not a body that supports any one particular religion, and so... They had to change the wording to extend this provision to all religions, and it later became the Defamation of Religion Resolution. It was a non-binding resolution. The language in it said that it was trying to prevent negative stereotyping of religions and especially attempts to identify Islam with terrorism. And several of the countries, non-Islamic countries, that ended up signing on to it were countries such as Russia, Cuba, China, these countries voted for it, but several, several countries abstained. The reason being is that, first of all, the law already protects individuals from unfair religious discrimination Mm -hmm. in hiring practices and things like that. And it was perceived by many that it was too ambiguous and that it was going to end up being used as an excuse or a legitimization by certain Islamic states to stifle criticism of many of their practices. The International Humanist and Ethical Union has a great statement about this one. This is off their website. We'll have a link. We find these resolutions to be both unnecessary and deeply flawed. Within the context of human rights, the very concept of defamation of religion is flawed, since it is individuals, both believers and non-believers alike, who have rights, not religions. Furthermore, The lack of definition of the term defamation leaves these resolutions open to abuse. And given the fact that Pakistan, the country that was pushing for this so much, already has a a system in place where they 
sort of a tiered protection for certain religions where uh, where some are given more protections than others it was it seemed pretty clear that this was not going to be practiced in a way that that would be fair and equal anyways that eventually went away because the body that was enforcing it the commission on human rights was also abolished many perceived that it was becoming too political that they were in essence they were not protecting human rights at all and they were very selective about what issues they were willing to pursue and so it was decided by many at the UN that the it, the situation uh, with the Commission on Human Rights had gotten so bad that it couldn't possibly be rehabilitated any sort of way and so they just they just ended it and started a whole new organization that was the Commission on Human Rights but basically that plan didn't work because the Commission on Human Rights has been pretty much a failure since it started. For example, here's a, another quote from the International Humanist Ethical Union. Since its inception in June 2006, the Human Rights Council has failed to condemn the most egregious examples of human rights abuse in the Sudan, Saudi Arabia, China, and elsewhere, whilst repeatedly condemning Israel and Israel alone. So for quite some time, the Commission on Human Rights has not been a very effective body in defending human rights worldwide. But now they've gone one step further. Mm -hmm. What they did, as Austin talked about, I'll quote the article again, at the first reading the amendment to the resolution to renew the mandate of the special rapporteur on freedom of expression might seem to be reasonable. It requires a special rapporteur quote, to report on instances in which the abuse of the right of freedom of expression constitutes an act of racial or religious discrimination. So sounds all right. However, as our friends in Canada put it, requesting the special rapporteur to report on abuses of this right would turn the mandate on its head. Instead of promoting freedom of expression, the special rapporteur would be policing its exercise. If this amendment is adopted, they threatened, Canada would withdraw its sponsorship from the main resolution. So several delegates agreed with the Canadian position. That was India uh, agreed, the European Union, the United Kingdom, uh, who was also speaking for Australia and us in the United States, mm -hmm. Brazil, Bolivia, Guatemala, Switzerland, all of them uh, withdrew sponsorship from this resolution when the amendment ended up being passed. So in other words, the defenders of free expression, as soon as this amendment ended up getting passed, withdrew support from the commission. Which means that that commission is now run entirely by people who yeah. supported this resolution. It's basically run now by the Islamic Conference, the OIC. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it represents 57 Islamic states. A handful of the people who supported that measure are not exactly players known for their support of civil rights. China and Cuba and Russia are among them. That should right there be enough to tell you uh, what this bill is really about if all of those countries are coming out to support it. So that's the situation. And anybody who really does care about human rights on the global scene, especially freedom of expression, needs to wake up to what's going on in the UN and uh, needs to break the silence on this and put a stop to this. Many are thinking right now that, the, as Austin Daisy said, the best thing to do is just to abandon the council altogether, that this, this too is a body that will not 
will not ever support human rights. It's been too politicized. It's been it's been destroyed. There's a trend now towards a dilution of what of free speech in general, not just with the UN, but in the United States, like with the whole academic freedom, Ben Stein things that that conservatives and mm-hmm. Islamic people seem to be changing, trying to change, reframe the notion of free speech into diluting it into free speech, but not offensive speech. Like if free speech doesn't cover offensive speech, what kind of speech is it made right. for? What's the point? Mm-hmm. Why, why would you need that? And now it's kind of, we see in America this this tend towards uh, even some support. Like didn't the, was it the Pope or the Catholic Church that said that they agree that you can't, uh, that the Danish cartoon things shouldn't have offended yeah. Muslims? So like what I'm interested in is obviously the Islamic Council would support this sort of thing because that's you know they don't want criticism of their thing. But I'm wondering whether why the moderate people are yeah. are silent or why we haven't heard anything, and whether that's related in America to this kind of uh, trend towards people saying yes, well, free speech, but uh, but with all these caveats in it. Whether there's a movement afoot. Yeah, and I don't think it's even just in America. This is becoming a global craze that free speech should only be positive speech. Well, you watch that clip. I forget what country it is, but the representative said something like, or it was Sri Lanka, that said that uh, the reason we're supporting this is because it's going to reduce violence. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they're saying is that free speech is all well and good, but if people are going to get rowdy when you insult them, then we just better prohibit that speech. Yeah. So essentially they're allowing themselves to be held hostage. Many perceive that there are certain boundaries to freedom of expression like inciting people to riot and that sort of thing and they're trying to enlarge those boundaries to you know even the threat that there could be some sort of riot which if you think about it with the danish cartoons and and all this sort of thing is is strange because it's it's the people whose religious rights are being offended that are the threat of violence <laughs> Right. They're able to like, like that, it, it makes it sound like, okay, well, I could get behind that inciting to violence. I mean, what if a public official was getting up there and saying, okay, we need to go kill the Jews in our neighborhoods or something like that? Yeah, or but yelling it's, fire it's in a the crowded people, theater. Yeah, the threat is coming from the people who are being offended, not... But they're able to reframe that by saying, if you say something and that's offensive to me, then if I riot, that's your fault. Right, yeah. And, and that's uh, and you see that it's not just with the Islamic people. You also see that uh, you know in our country too, where uh, even on the liberal end of things, a lot of the things on like campus right. speech with hate speech, and mm-hmm. they were probably well intentioned. Like you know, don't say anything that's racial, racially insensitive. But the logical conclusion when you extend it is again, if I get upset about something that you've just said, it's your fault because you shouldn't have said it. Like I have a right not to be offended. You don't have a right not to be offended. If you're in a pluralistic society, that free speech has to protect offensive speech. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. At the risk of sounding like like right-wing talk radio again, this is political correctness gone amok. The radicals, extremists, and the real bigots in society are never, ever restrained by that kind of attitude. So what's the solution, guys? Do we just need to start offending people? You need to riot back. <laughs> I think we're doing a pretty good job with that already. So... I, I'm just wondering, are we actually potentially going to be arrested by the U.N. now because we are being critical of religions? Does that apply to us? Well, I mean, the good thing is these bodies are never effective in doing anything anyway. They took the U.N.'s black helicopters away from them, I think. So now they can't oh, okay. be oh, good. like they used to take my cattle as well and do experiments, but uh, not anymore. It's a toothless body. Well, that, that's encouraging. At, at least they're impotent, but even impotent, I don't trust the the new world order they've established with the OIC
On a lighter note, let's go to the props list this week. Entry onto the props list, Evangelicals Say Faith is Now Too Political. And you can find this article on the Christian Post if you search the well-duh section of the Christian Post. This comes from the AP. Conservative Christian leaders who believe the word evangelical has lost its religious meaning plan to release a starkly self-critical document saying the movement has become too political and has diminished the gospel through its approach to the culture wars. That way, faith loses its independence. Christians become useful idiots for one political party or another, and the Christian faith becomes an ideology, according to a draft of the Evangelical Manifesto, which is what they're calling this document. took them a while to see that. Call me cynical, but is this correlated with the decline of the Republican and conservative wing of the Republican Party that all the rats are leaving the sinking ship and suddenly saying, we're not tied with the Republicans? That was definitely the feeling I had when I saw this. In a way, it's kind of a victory for just the sort of thing we've been talking about all day on the show today is people are sick and tired of it, and they're now voicing their criticisms in ways they haven't before. And there's a lot of people, even churchgoers, who are laughing at Bill Maher's jokes and starting to understand them and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, and also politically, this makes an argument for why church and state should be separated from a really, if you're a religious person, it benefits you as well, because when right. one party goes down or one set of policies is defeated, then you don't see your religion sucked into that, too. If- it's notable that the Reverend Dr. James Dobson of the euphemistically titled Focus on the Family, and by family, he doesn't mean gay people, unless you mean focus as in target he did not sign this document, but... So several evangelical leaders did not. Right, but it's unclear if they actually even saw the document or read it, but... But in these groups that tend to follow the leader, any sort of thing that's going to break that unity, the more and more evangelical leaders that start standing up against Dobson and, and creating a division there, the more freedom, the more space there is going to be for discussion. Right. And, and then the Dobson and those people reserve special venom for the people like the sojourners and the liberal uh, uh, Christian types because mm-hmm. they it's a split in their party. They're saying they're using biblical justifications for anti-poverty and, you know, education, environmental programs, mm-hmm. global warming type things. And that scares the crap out of conservative Christian leaders because until then, theirs was the only game in town. Right. Yeah. But it would be fantastic to see Dobson and Pat Robertson signing on to something like this saying that religion is becoming too political, but it ain't going to happen because these guys are politicians before they're religious leaders. I I truly believe that their political agenda comes before their religious agenda. Because they're breaking up the the illusion of unity. They never had unity, but they had that illusion. The, the, The media respected it. The Republican Party respected it. If this continues growing, this could have ramifications way outside evangelical Christianity. I mean, I'm not a libertarian, but I certainly respect the fiscal conservatives more than I do the social conservatives. Mm -hmm. I think they could have more of a voice in the conservative movement in the Republican Party. I mean, what we could see is the demise of the religious right. Well, and And just make the right. And have the right and the religious and have them be two separate groups. And I think with all of the the religion we've been seeing playing a role in the primary process here with the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, people are just sick of it, and people are starting to go, 
why are we listening to the candidate's that's a, minister? That's a perfect example because now you've seen Obama was thinking that he could wear his religion on his sleeve and, and mm-hmm. take back the religion uh, for the liberals and say the, the audacity of hope and all these things. And then yep. the guy who has those words is suddenly dragging him down. And this is why the Democrats shouldn't be allied with, re- with religion either is because if you're going to tout your religion and say, look at me, you know, uh, look at my religious credentials, and then the guy turns out to be a nut job right. and, or scares off the, the white voters that you need to win, then you get sucked down too. Whereas if Obama would have started off by saying, yeah, I go to church, but that's that business. I'm going to talk about po- politics. He wouldn't have been sucked in as much. I think most of the most of the credit can go on the, the failures of of the religious right extremists. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Four Horsemen and the Boom in atheism mm-hmm. lately isn't playing a small role in this too because they do cite in that press release they mention about how evangelical Christianity's own failures are fueling reactions against religion. Absolutely. Um, reactions against religion, I think it's not too much of a stretch to insert <laughs> the fact that there's Dawkins. so many atheist bestsellers. Right. Well, anytime you have a movement, there's going to be a counter-movement. That's always been oh, yeah. in history. When That's how the religious right came about is because mm-hmm. of the 60s. Right. And that the, the religious right perceived themselves to be a besieged minority. They started come building their little grassroots thing in the 70s, and then Reagan allowed them to burst forth. The pendulum always swings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how the counter-movement to the atheists speaking out is actually playing exactly into the godless agenda, which is to keep politics and religion separate. So good news all around here. Now, I'm cautiously optimistic about it, but we're definitely headed in the right direction if this holds up. So, yes, props to our evangelical friends who actually have a conscience. Now, if only their prayers for lower gas prices would start to work. I'd give them props if it would work. Meanwhile, I'm paying $4 a gallon. And I'm walking. Pink Okami liberals. All right, that's it for this week. Please remember to check out our Facebook group, our MySpace page. Email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Keep those letters coming in. Send us your questions, comments, challenges, suggestions, etc., and so forth. Thanks for listening. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.